Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker night, Father William, entered the Norbertines in 1972 and professed solemn vows in 1978. After completing his licentiate in theology at Rome's Pontifical University of St. Thomas the Angelicum in 1991 and serving as high school chaplain and seminary professor, Father William came to the United States and joined St. Michael's Abbey in Orange County, California. Since coming to the U.S., Father William has served as professor of theology at Aquinas College, director and professor of liturgy and homiletics at the Pontifical College Josephinum in Columbus, Ohio, director of liturgy for the Diocese of Covington, Kentucky, and since 2007 as associate chaplain at Christendom College. Please welcome Father William Fitzgerald. Thank you very much for your welcome. This series of three talks is about monasticism. Tonight I hope to start at the beginning and work up to St. Anthony of Egypt, uh, who's remembered as the first monk by some. Um, others say there was someone earlier than that, and I'm sure there were lots earlier than him. But we'll go up to St. Anthony, and then next week we will look at uh, Eastern monasticism in the, the, the Eastern Church, and then the following week, the last week, uh, monasticism in the Western Church. The parent stem of religious life in the church, so all forms of religious life, that we see any religious around in the church today, the parent stem of all religious life is monasticism. The principles finally laid down in the 12th and 13th centuries, which give the main features since adopted by all the modern religious groups within the church, we would have to say that the basic parent stem is the genus monk and the species then is friar, canon, whatever, Jesuit even, um, <laughs> various things like that. So um, the church, in the church family the genus of consecrated life is monk and it comes from the word for monos like meaning one and so someone who lives for God alone or someone who lives to, be, to live as one this is the, the root of all uh, religious life in the church. But then there are, in the, especially in the Western church, a whole lot of different species within that general genus of monk. And of course the female form of monarchus or monk is moniales. When we use the term nun, we should really mean a woman who takes solemn vows, who lives a cloistered life, uh, a life of prayer, with silence and the liturgy and those sort of things. So most of the ladies we see about are not nuns. They're sisters. So there are different, there are different species than nuns. Even though we'll say mercy nuns, Ursuline nuns, they're, they're not nuns, they're sisters. Okay? Um, so the, 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 the general genus is monk. The species um, are very, very different. So we do have monks in the church still. We also have um, canons who are clerics who live a monastic way of life around a church and minister to the people. And that's the breed that I am. I'm a Norbertine canon. Um, so I'm not a monk. I'm not a friar. I'm a canon. And so I'm attached to a particular church, my abbey church. And um, around the abbey church, we celebrate the liturgy every day fully and we minister to the people. And sometimes, when you're as crazy as I am, they send you way away somewhere from the abbey to help somewhere else. Um, then you have the friars, who were the wandering, begging guys of the 13th, 14th centuries. The most common friars we know in the Catholic Church are Francis and Dominic. Okay, so they, they come after. They, they had a very mobile way of life. Um, the Franciscan friars had a, a life of great gospel simplicity. The Dominicans took on kind of the intellectual apostolate in the rising universities. And so they are another kind of um, species 
within the genus of monk overall. And then you have the regular clerics, clerks regular, sometimes called. And the Jesuits would be an example of that. Uh, and the Redemptorists, and the Passionists, and the Blessed Sacrament Fathers, and you know, any group of men religious that take vows would be clerks regular, or clerics regular. And then you have apostolic religious communities of priests, brothers, or sisters who engage very much in active apostolate. And then you have, even today, we have new things called societies of apostolic life that are kind of a, a grouping, but they don't have vows except celibacy. So they can even have their own income and, uh, and, and various things like that. But these, all of these things, whatever they are, they find as back in their origin the idea of the monk. Cardinal Basil Hume, who was Archbishop of Westminster in England, Archbishop Hume said, there's a bit of the monk in all of us. And I think there is. There's a bit in all of us that wants to seek God alone above all else. If we're a Catholic, <laughs> we, would, we would want to seek God alone above all else. So there's a bit of the monk in every one of us. The, the various families of religious developing in different ways, retain some of the characteristics of their first parents, the monks. In the Eastern Church, for the most part, monasticism has remained the only form of religious life. Not exclusively, but in the Eastern Church, mainly it is monastic forms of the religious life that have survived. In the Western Church, we have a great company of orders and congregations and societies that have all sprung up, they retain some basic elements of the life of the monk, such as vows. So any religious who takes vows, you know, generally poverty, chastity, obedience, then that's something they have in common with monks back in, back in the heritage. Some form that set daily prayers of some kind. The monks prayed eight times a day in the Western Church, and um, at various times of the night even, some of those eight times. Now, you might have a group of active sisters who have prayer in the morning and prayer in the evening, but they still have set prayer together at some point. Many of the, the groups that have come since, the, the new species, if you like, have abandoned the idea of removal from the world. There was always, in the monastic thing, an idea of separation from the world. Um, and already, in a sense, living something like the life of the angels. And they even called it the angelic-like life. Because the angels were not given to things carnal and sexual. The angels are not given to having bags full of money or property. The angels are not terribly worried about eating, because they can't and don't. And the angels concentrate on God. And so in a certain sense, there was a kind of angelic-like life among those who lived the monastic life. But the idea of sort of removal from the world tended, as more groups developed later and later in the history of the church, that removal from the world tended to be diminished. But even the most active religious are in some lineal descent from monasticism though the very use of the term monasticism is explicitly renounced by many of them when they talk about their way of life. But if they won't admit it, they're denying some aspect of their ancestry because there is a bit of the monk in all of us. Monasticism can be studied in various ways. It can be studied as a purely religious force, spiritual teaching, the great examples of holiness of the wonderful people who have lived monastic life. But it also can be a study of decline, where the life is no longer seriously lived and it can be weakened. So we can study it as a religious phenomenon under those headings. It can be studied as a social phenomenon. For example, clerical life over against the lay establishment you know, of the, the monarch and the nobility and the church and the monasteries. So you can kind of look at it in that kind of social, cultural context. It can even be studied and has been as an economic phenomenon. The Cistercian order, for example, in England, 
basically introduced the wool industry in, in a big way in England. And so the, the, the Cistercians' contribution economically was a fantastic thing for the, for the English economy in the years before the Reformation. And so they were producers, they were farmers, they were capitalists, if you like, and they were consumers. So you can study uh, monastic life from an economic kind of, as, a, as an economic phenomenon. But it can also be studied as a cultural force because monasteries transmitted the legacy of the past. They were the first places of higher education. You know, so where people studied deeply um, historical sources, even the Greek philosophers and, and things that were handed down. It was only in the monasteries that the manuscripts were preserved. And so when vandals attacked monasteries, they destroyed manuscripts and burnt the place down. This was a terrible loss to civilization. So the monasteries were the cultural force for transmitting that legacy of the past in higher education, in the patronage of architecture. So when you look at the, you can get nice colorful um, books of the monasteries of Europe, for example, and you see some of the most beautiful um, structures in Europe. And so there was a great patronage of architecture and sculpture as well. Also, the monasteries were the repository of music because it was in the monasteries that the texts of the liturgy were preserved before there was any form of writing music and people would learn how to sing the various texts and you, you went, you'd send a young monk about probably 18 years of age off to one of the great chant schools and he'd have to learn all the chants for the liturgical year in about four years. And he would come back to his monastery and he was the talking, walking, speaking, singing book of chant. Because all they had were texts, they had no music. And so he would have to know all the chants of the liturgical year. And so the monasteries preserved music. And finally, around about the 12th, 11th, 12th century, um, the, the form of writing the music on four lines with blocks block notation developed and so they could actually record what notes were being sung. Then they moved to five lines and so then the development of modern music. If you study music at university level and you go into the origins of Western music, you have to study Gregorian chant because it's the first recorded Western music. Very, very important to that contribution of monasticism to music. Also, the monasteries were the places of calligraphy and illumination, particularly before the, um, inventing of, uh, the, inven the uh, invention of printing in the 15th century. So all time before that is handwritten copies of everything. Like even a, a new church starts somewhere and you need a missal and you need a lectionary and you need a breviary and you need various books, you have to go to a monastery and say, can some monk write a copy of these for us? Imagine how long it would take to transcribe a Bible. The invention of printing was a very radical thing in, in sort of an explosion of information when it came about. But prior to that, it was the monasteries that preserved the manuscripts and copied the manuscripts and made the manuscripts but what I hope to do is principally present monasticism as a way of consecration in trying to follow Christ more closely. And that, I believe, is what is at the root of monasticism. So, as we said, it comes from the Greek word monos, meaning single or alone. And it usually refers to a way of life which can be either communitarian or solitary. So, some who live monastic life live by themselves. Um, eremitical life, we call it, or the life of hermits. And there were lots of those right through the history of the church. But then others had varying degrees of living together in community. And so that, that, um, that is a, a different experience, the communal experience. But whether it was communitarian or solitary, adopted by men or women, they chose to pursue an ideal of perfection or a higher level of religious experience through leaving the world. 
And so they left the world and sought to live a life as perfectly as they could. Monastic groups have historically been organized around a rule or a teacher. Sometimes the teacher was kind of the living rule. So you watched him, saw how he lived and copied him. And then at some point he might have actually sat down with a pen if he could write, or someone who could write, and get him to say some things. The rule of St. Augustine, for example, was dictated by St. Augustine when some religious women said, Bishop Augustine, the monks in Hippo live such a wonderful way of life. Your community is such an inspiration. What, what is your rule? Well, he was the rule. <laughs> you see? So he didn't say, well, I'm the rule. <laughs> he said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get some ideas together for you. And so a scribe sat down and Augustine dictated. The first purpose that you have come together is to live in unity in the house and to be one mind and one heart on the way to God. That's the opening of the rule of St. Augustine. And so they then made copies of that, gave it to other women, and when Augustine died, the men said, hey, can we have a copy of Augustine's rule? Because <laughs> the men never actually had the rule. They, they, had, they had him as the rule. And so they actually asked for a written copy um, of what he had given the women to follow. So the, the monastic groupings have been either around a rule or a teacher. And the activities of the members are closely regulated in accordance with the rule adopted. The practice of monasticism is quite ancient. It existed in India almost 10 centuries before Christ. It can be found in some form amongst most developed religions, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in Jainism, Taoism, the Sufi branch of Islam, and, of course, in Christianity. In the time of Christ, the Essenes at Qumran were Jewish monastics who were believed to have been the custodians of the so-called Dead Sea Scrolls found in the 20th century. Some scholars believe that these Essenes influenced the life of St. John the Baptist, because remember he lived out in the desert for many years, and some of the early disciples of our Lord, because um, they were disciples of John the Baptist who went over to Christ. So maybe the Essenes in some way influenced them. While some form of monasticism has appeared in several of the major religions of civilized man and represents a common response of moral and spiritual aspirations, we must note that the teaching of Jesus Christ aroused these aspirations in a new form and that Christian monasticism is a response to Jesus Christ. In fact, those who have lived the monastic life from the earliest times till today see their life as a vocation whereby they dedicate themselves to a deeper understanding and a more thorough observance of the commands of our Lord and his evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And they live this in a more demanding form than the simple profession of the Christian faith. Even a married person, in some sense, lives poverty, chastity, and obedience. Lots of married people who live in poverty, especially if they have a big family. There are married people who practice chastity as well, for various reasons, and practice a, a spousal chastity which excludes other relationships than their spouse. And so there is a proper chastity in marriage. <laughs> and lots of spouses live obedience. I'm not quite sure to whom, but... Um, <laughs> That's a dynamic in each different house. Um, but there are those who, who take those three things and live them as the full profession of their life. Technically, so then, monasticism embraces the life of the hermit, characterized by varying degrees of extreme solitude, and then the life of the cenobite, that is, the monk living in a community um, with a limited amount of solitude. So the word for monk began to be used in Christian circles around the early 4th century. It referred at first to an anchorite or a hermit, but in very short time it was applied to all who left the world, whether they lived alone or in community. This asceticism may include fasting, silence, prohibition against personal ownership, 
the acceptance of bodily discomfort. It almost always includes poverty, celibacy, and obedience to a spiritual leader. The goal of these practices is usually a more intense relationship with God, some type of personal enlightenment or the service of God through prayer, meditation, and also good works such as feeding the poor or teaching or even nursing. There were many monasteries in the early and high Middle Ages that were the only place to get health care and the only place to get education. So you, would you say that this monastery, are they a teaching order? No, they're just a monastery. What do monasteries do? They pray to God, they have the liturgy, and they feed the poor at the gate and look after the sick and teach the kids. And that's what a monastery does in the Middle Ages. And so they are, in a sense, the city of God um, within society. They say that the rise of poverty in England began with the closure of the monasteries. That was the beginning of po real poverty in English. The poorhouse system of the Anglican parishes was nothing like the monasteries that offered food at the gate to everyone who came. I know in the Abbey of Tongolo in Belgium from, from our order in the 1300s fed as many as 700 people a day at the gate with a pint of ale, <laughs> a pint of soup, and a loaf of bread. And that was the standard thing to each poor person who came. And then the rules specified on what days they had to give out shirts, breeches, shoes, and belts, and things like that for people to wear. So, it has already been pointed out that the, mon the monastic ideal is an ascetical one, a disciplined one, but it would be wrong to say that the earliest Christian asceticism was monastic. The circumstances in which the early Christians lived for the first century or so of the churches of existence, the living apart from the congregation of the faithful or forming within it um, associations to practice special renunciations was out of the question. Why? Because the community itself lived something like a monastic life. There's a very strongly communitarian element in the Church of Jerusalem during the years of his existence. So see, for example, in Acts 2, 44 to 47, quote, all the faithful uh, held together and shared all they had, sell selling their possessions and means of livelihood so as to distribute to all as each had need. They persevered with one accord, day by day in temple worship and they broke bread, the code term for the Eucharist, in this house or that, took their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and winning favor with all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship others that were to be saved. End of quote. So the community of goods was a natural continuation of the practice of these early Christians, begun by Jesus and the apostles, where one of the band kept the common purse and acted as steward. This early strand of communal life among the first believers was never forgotten in the church. And it came to the fore explicitly, for example, in the rule of St. Augustine, who sees his communities as living the apostolic life of the early church. The influence of the Jerusalem community then was contributory in the general development of monastic life. For more than a century after Pentecost, Christians formed fairly small and compact groups in cities and towns. They were regarded by others with distaste and suspicion. And when they became too numerous in the eyes of their pagan neighbors, they were liable to persecution and spoilation. However, the actual persecutions were not as continuous or as universal as we sometimes imagined. But becoming a Christian was a serious business. Because if you joined that crowd, you could be martyred. That was one of the possibilities. And it was in fact regarded among the faithful as the Christian's glory to be martyred and as the ideal of perfection. Two new waves of persecution more fierce than ever before, took place under Dacius, 249 to 252, and Diocletian, 284 to 305. 
but soon after came the conversion of Constantine and the swift transformation of the Christian church from a persecuted and fervent sect into a ruling and rapidly increasing body, favoured and directed by the emperor. And membership in the church even brought material advancement with it in politics. Now, the general body of Christians were sincere believers, but without any desire for real fervour as time went on. And in some ways, they settled so happily in the world that they were on the way either to losing their faith or retaining it in spite of a life which failed to observe all the commands of Christ, nor share in the devotional and sacramental life of the church with regularity. Sounds a bit like our parishes today. They, the prevailing laxity invited a radical response by those whose conviction was especially observant and devout. And so the way of this consecration as a monk was regarded as what they called the white martyrdom. Not martyrdom by blood anymore, but a voluntary giving up the things of the world. And the principal cause that begot monasticism was then simply to follow um, Christ's law literally, to imitate him in all simplicity, following his footsteps whose kingdom is not of this world. So we find monasticism at first instinctive, informal, unorganized, sporadic, and circumstances developing with the natural growth of the plant according to the environment in which it finds itself and the character of the individual listener who heard in his soul the call, come, follow me. Monasticism, when it came, was a precipitation of all these ideas previously in evidence among Christians. Asceticism is a struggle against worldly principles, even with such as that are just merely worldly without actually being sinful. The world desires and honours wealth. So the ascetic honours and loves poverty as a, as a deliberate thing. There's nothing wrong with wealth in itself, but to take the opposite end of the spectrum. It must have something in the nature of property that he and his fellows hold it in common just because the world respects and safeguards private ownership. So the monastery becomes a contradiction, as it were, to the world. In like manner, he practices fasting and continence that he may repudiate the licentiousness of the world. And so some people saying, how can you live without sex? Say, well, come to our monastery and you see that we all do. <laughs> people can actually do that. You know, this is in the history of, of, of monastic life. The monastic ideal was foreshadowed in the asceticism of the gospel and its first followers. Such passages as 1 John 2, do not love the world for the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, sensual lust, enticement for the eyes, and a pretentious life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Yet the world and its enticement are passing away. But whoever does the will of God remains forever. Such passages which we can multiply, um, and, and these were the things that people attempted to live literally. Um, and this is precisely what the early ascetics did. We read of some who, driven by the Spirit of God, dedicated their energies to the spread of the gospel, and giving up all their possessions, passed from city to city in voluntary poverty as apostles and evangelists. Of others, we hear that they renounced property and marriage so as to, vote, to devote their lives to the poor and the needy in a particular church. If these were not, strictly speaking, monks and nuns, at least the monks and nuns were people like this in due course. And when the monastic life took definite shape in the fourth century, these forerunners were naturally looked to as the first exponents of monasticism. The Christian ideal is frankly an ascetic one and monasticism is simply the endeavour to realise that ideal. Asceticism, self-discipline, is not an end in itself. The real goal is to love God. Monastic asceticism then means the removal of all obstacles to loving God. 
And what these obstacles are is clear from the nature of love itself. Love is the union of wills. If the creature is to love God, he can do it in only one way, by sinking his will into God's will and doing the will of God in all things. And so monastic life organizes everything in accordance with the ideal of the love of God before all else. The evangelical councils deserve special attention for the observance of these is at the heart of all monastic and consecrated life. There are few subjects, if any, upon which more sayings of Jesus has been preserved than the superiority of poverty over wealth in his kingdom. I've got a whole pile of quotes, but I won't bore you with them. And the fact that of their preservation would indicate that such words were frequently quoted and presumably frequently acted upon. The argument based on such passages as Matthew 19.21 may be put briefly thus. If a man wishes to attain eternal life, it is better for him to renounce his possessions than to retain them, Jesus said. How hard it shall be for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. The reason being, no doubt, that it is difficult to prevent the affections from becoming attached to riches and that such attachment makes admission into Christ's kingdom impossible. As St. Augustine points out, the disciples evidently understood Jesus to include all who covet riches in the number of the rich. Otherwise, considering the small number of the wealthy compared to the vast multitude of the poor, the, the apostles wouldn't have asked who then can be saved. So it's an attitude which is grasping and wanting stuff and and riches, not necessarily having them, but setting one's heart on them completely. You cannot serve both God and money is an obvious truth to a man who knows by experience the difficulty of wholehearted service of God. For the spiritual and material good are in immediate antithesis. And where one is, the other cannot be. Man cannot satisfy his nature with a temporal and yet retain an appetite for the eternal. And so if he would live the life of the spirit, he must free the lust of the world and keep his heart detached from what its very nature is unspiritual. The extent in which this spiritual poverty is practiced has varied greatly in the monasticism of different ages and lands. In Egypt, the first teachers of monks taught the renunciation should be made as absolute as possible. Abbot Agathon used to say, Owe nothing which it would grieve you to give to another. Own nothing that would grieve you to part with. St. Macarius once, upon returning to his cell, found a robber carrying off his scanty furniture. St. Macarius thereupon pretended to be a stranger, harnessed the robber's horse and helped him to get the spoil away. <laughs> because he's thinking, well, I don't even need this. He can have it. Another monk had so stripped himself of all things that he possessed nothing save a copy of the Gospels. After a while, he sold this also and gave the price away, saying, I have sold the very book that bade me sell all I had. As the monastic institute became more organized, legislation appeared in the various codes to regulate this point among others. That the principle remained the same, however, is clear from the strong way in which both St. Augustine and later St. Benedict, almost quoting him directly, speaks of the manner of allowing special um, needs for those who are infirm. The rule of St. Benedict says in chapter 33, Above everything, the vice of private ownership is to be cut off by the roots from the monastery. Let no one presume either to give or to receive anything without leave of the abbot, nor to keep anything as his own, neither book, nor writing tablets, nor pen, nor anything whatsoever, since it is unlawful for them to have their bodies or wills in their own power. So the principle is laid down here, namely that the renunciation of private property is absolute, and it remains in force today as at the dawn of monasticism. No matter to what extent any individual monk may be allowed the use of clothing, books, or even money, the ultimate proprietorship in such things is not his. The renunciation of material possessions, then, is the first and the easiest step for man to take, 
as these things are external to his nature. Next in difficulty will come the things that are united to man's nature. Hence the ascending order, chastity. Perfect continence is the second of the evangelical councils. And as such it is based upon the words of Jesus. If anyone comes to me without hating his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, you know the word hate there. It's that the Jews don't have comparative terms. So it's um, if anyone prefers um, to me. So um, it is obvious that of all the ties that bind the human heart to this world, the possession of wife and children is the strongest. Moreover, the renunciation of the monk includes not only these, but in accordance with the strictest teaching of Jesus, all sexual relations or the emotions arising from them. The monastic ideal of chastity is a life like that of the angels. Hence the phrases angelicus ordo, angelica conversatio, the angelic order, the, the angelic conversion, which have been adopted from origin to describe the life of the monk, no doubt are in reference to Mark 12.25. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. It is primary as a means to this end that fasting takes so important a place in the monastic life. Among the early Egyptian and Syrian monks in particular, fasting was carried to such lengths that some modern writers have been led to regard it as almost as an end in itself, instead of being merely a means and a subordinate one at that. This error, of course, is confined to writers about monasticism and it has never been countenanced by any monastic teacher. So the idea of sexual chastity and fasting goes together as, as to deny oneself the pleasure of excessive eating, which I should do, um, also enables one to live the discipline of celibacy. The two ideas are uh, associated with each other. And then along with them comes prayer. St. Benedict writes, The first step in humility is obedience without delay. This benefits those who count nothing dearer to them than Christ on account of the holy service which they have undertaken. Without doubt, such as these that follow the th that thought of the Lord when he said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Of all the steps in the process of renunciation, the denial of a man's own will is clearly the most difficult. Much harder than poverty, much harder than chastity, is obedience. At the same time, it is most essential of all, as Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The most difficult because of self-interest, self-protection, self-regard of all kinds are absolutely a part of man's nature so that to master such instincts requires a supernatural strength. This is essential also because by this means the monk achieves that perfect liberty which is only to be found where the spirit of the Lord is. It was Seneca who wrote, freedom is to obey God. Freedom is to obey God. And the pagan philosopher's dictum is confined, it's confirmed and testified on every page of the gospel. In Egypt at the dawn of monasticism, the custom was for a young monk to put himself under the guidance of a superior whom he obeyed in all things. Although the bond between them was wholly voluntary, the system seems to have worked perfectly and the commands of the senior were obeyed without hesitation. Obedience is the mother of all virtues. Obedience is that which opens heaven and rises man from the earth. These are all quotes from the Desert Fathers. Obedience is the food of all the saints. By her they are nourished. Through her they come to perfection. Such sayings illustrate sufficiently the view held on this point by the Fathers of the Desert. As the monastic life came to be organized by rule, the insistence on obedience remained the same and its practice was legislated for. Thus St. Benedict, at the very outset, in the prologue to his rule, reminds the monk of the prime purpose of his life, that thou mayest return by labor of obedience to him from whom thou hast departed by the sloth of disobedience. 
Later, he votes the whole of his fifth chapter to this subject, and again, in detailing the vows his monks must take, while poverty and chastity are presumed as implicitly included, obedience is one of the three things explicitly promised. St. Benedict writes that what is commanded is to be done not fearfully, tardily, nor coldly, nor with murmuring, nor with an answer showing unwillingness, for the obedience which is given to superiors is given to God, since he himself has said, he that hears you, hears me. Imagine if parents could have that obedience. <laughs> it's not hard to see why so much emphasis is laid on this point. The object of monasticism is to love God in the highest degree possible in this life. In true obedience, the will of the servant is one with the will of the master, and the union of wills is love. Wherefore, that the obedience of the monk's will to that of God may be as simple and direct as possible, St. Benedict writes, the abbot is considered to hold in the monastery the place of Christ. Besides a desire of observing the evangelical councils and a horror of the vice and disorder that prevailed in a pagan age, two further contributory causes are often indicated as leading to the renunciation of the world among the early Christians. The first was the expectation of the immediate second coming of Christ. So when we read 1 Corinthians 7, 29 to 31, I tell you, brothers, time is running out. From now on, let those having wives act as not having them. Those weeping as not weeping. Those rejoicing as not rejoicing. Those buying as not owning. Those using the world as not using it fully. For the world in its present form is passing away. Well, maybe it's not as present or as immediate as St. Paul thought, but it's still true that the world is passing away, this world. This belief was known to be widespread. Obviously, it would afford a strong motive for renunciation since a man who expects this present order of things to end at any moment will lose keen interest in many, many matters commonly held to be important. When the chips are down, at the end of the day, what's really important? You know, when we stand in the last hours of our life, you know, what's going to be important to us? Not, not our bank account balance. Not even that, at that stage. So this belief had ceased to be of any great influence by the fourth century, so that it cannot be regarded as a determining factor in the origin of monasticism, which then took visible shape, but it was a factor. A second cause more operative in leading men to renounce the world was their vividness of belief in evil spirits. First Christians saw the kingdom of Satan actualized, actually realized in the political and social life of the heathen state in which they lived. In their eyes, the gods whose temples shone in every city were simply devils, and to participate in their rites was to join in devil worship. When Christianity first came in touch with the Gentiles, the Council of Jerusalem, by its decree about meat offered to idols in Acts 15.20, made clear the line to be followed. Consequently, certain professions were practically closed to believers, since a soldier, a schoolmaster, or a state official of any kind might be called upon at a moment's notice to participate in some act of state religion, offering sacrifice to one of these satanic gods. But the difficulty existed for private individuals also. There were gods who presided over every moment of man's life, gods of house and of garden, of food and drink, of health and sickness. To one of these, to, not to one of these, um, was regarded as atheism. Christians regarded honoring them as idolatry. To ignore them would attract inquiry and possibly persecution. And so when to men placed in this dilemma, St. John wrote, keep yourselves from idols. He said, in effect, keep yourselves from public life, from society, politics, intercourse of any kind with the heathen. In short, renounce the world. There is no debate about the time and place of, of the origin of Christian monasticism. The place was Egypt, and the time was in the last decades of the third century. The year 271 stands out, for it was in that year that Antony, the son of a well-to-do well Egyptian peasants, 
heard the words of Jesus as a priest read the Holy Gospel at Mass from Matthew 19.21. If you will be perfect, go sell all you have and give to the poor, then come follow me. He was around 20 years of age. His parents had died and left him a handsome inheritance. Antony took our Lord's words as a command and he sought to live it literally. He sold his possessions, began to live alone, and he devoted himself to manual work and prayer. The chief source of information on St. Antony is a Greek life attributed to St. Athanasius, who, when being driven from his sea at one one time by Arians, sought refuge in the desert with St. Anthony. And he saw Anthony's life firsthand. And so when he got back home, he writes the life of St. Anthony. Long before the time of St. Anthony, it had been usual for Christians to practice asceticism, for some to abstain from marriage and to exercise themselves in self-denial, fasting, prayer, and works of piety. But they had done this in the midst of their families without leaving their home. Um, Later on in Egypt, such ascetics lived in huts on the outskirts of towns and villages. And this was the common practice when, in 270, Antony withdrew from the world. He began his career by practicing the ascetical life in this fashion without leaving his native place. He used to visit the various ascetics, study their lives, and learn from each one of them the virtue in which he seemed to excel. Then he took up his abode in one of the tombs near his native village, and there it was that the life records those strange conflicts with demons in the shape of wild beasts who inflicted blows upon him and sometimes left him nearly dead. After 15 years of this life, at the age of 35, Antony determined to withdraw from the habitations of men and retire into absolute solitude. He crossed the Nile and on a mountain near the east bank then called Pispir, now del Memum, he found an old fort into which he shut himself and lived there for 20 years without seeing the face of man. Food was sometimes thrown to him over the wall. He was at times visited by pilgrims whom he refused to see. But gradually a number of would-be disciples established themselves in caves and in huts around the mountain. Thus a colony of ascetics was formed who begged Anthony to come forth and be their guide in the spiritual life. At length, about the year 305, now he has the spiritual life himself, he yielded to their request and emerged from his solitude. And to the surprise of all, He appeared to be as he was when he had gone in, not emaciated, but vigorous in mind and body. For five or six years, he devoted himself to instruction and organization of the great body of monks that had grown up around him, eager to enjoy the fruits of his gift for inspiring and guiding others, and to know the secret of his life and spiritual maturity. But when they grew too numerous, then he withdrew once again into the inner desert that lay between the Nile and the Red Sea, near the shore of which he fixed his abode on a mountain where still stands the monastery that bears his name. Here he spent the last 45 years of his life, in a seclusion not so strict as Pispir, for he freely saw those who came to visit him, and he used to cross the desert to Pispir with considerable frequency. The life says that on two occasions he went to Alexandria, Once he came forth from the fort at Pispir to strengthen the Christian martyrs in the persecution of 311, and once at the the close of his life, around 350, to preach against the Arians. The life says he died at the age of 105. St. Jerome places his death in 356-357. At his own request, his grave was kept secret by the two disciples who buried him, lest his body should become an object of of veneration. I want to close by speaking a little bit about St. Anthony's influence in the history of Christian monasticism. As we know, he was not the first Christian hermit. St. Jerome writes about a certain Paul, who is sometimes called the first hermit in later writing, though his existence was not known till long after St. Anthony had been recognized as the leader of Christian hermits. St. Anthony was not a great legislator or organizer of monks like his younger contemporary, St. Pacomius, who we'll look at next week. For though Pacomius's first foundations were probably some 10 or 15 years later than Anthony's coming forth from his retreat, 
it cannot be shown that Pacomius was directly influenced by Antony. The institutions of St. Pacomius ran on quite different lines to those of Antony. And yet it is clear that from the middle of the 4th century, throughout Egypt and elsewhere, and even among the Pacomian monks themselves, St. Anthony was looked upon as the founder and the father of Christian monasticism. This great position was no doubt due to his commanding personality and high character, qualities that stand out clearly in all the records of him that have come down. The best study of his character is Cardinal Newman's in the Church of the Fathers. Cardinal Newman writes of St. Anthony, His doctrine surely was pure and unimpeachable, and his temper is high and heavenly, without cowardice, without gloom, without formality, without self-complacency. Superstition is abject and crouching. It is full of thoughts of guilt. It distrusts God and dreads the powers of evil. Antony, at least, had nothing of this, being full of confidence, divine peace, cheerfulness and valorousness. And he, as some men may judge, ever so much an enthusiast. Full of enthusiasm he was, but it did not make him fanatical or morose. His urbanity and gentleness, his moderation and sense stand out in many of the stories related of him. Abbot Moses in Cassian says he heard Antony maintaining that of all the virtues, discretion was the most essential for attaining perfection. And the little-known story of Eulogius and the cripple preserved in Lusiac history illustrates the kind of advice and direction he gave to those who sought his guidance. The monasticism established under St. Anthony's direct influence became the norm in northern Egypt, from Lycopolis to the Mediterranean. It was quite different to the fully communal Cenobitic system established by St. Pacomius in the south. The monastic settlements of St. Anthony continued to be semi-hermit or semi-eremitical in character. The monks lived in separate cells or huts and only came together occasionally for church services. They were left very much to their own devices and they, the life they lived was not a community life according to a rule as now understood. This was the form of monastic life followed by thousands of monks in the 4th century deserts of Nitria and Skate in the upper eastern Nile Delta as portrayed by Palladius, who a monk and priest himself wrote about these monks, and John Cashin from southern Gaul, who began his monastic life in Bethlehem, then travelled to Egypt to visit the solitaries renowned for holiness. John Cashin spent time in Constantinople as a disciple of St. John Chrysostom and in Rome. His life ended in Gaul near Marseille, where he founded monasteries for men and women. So look, look at that movement there of John Cashin. Bethlehem to Jerusalem to Constantinople to Rome back to Marseille in France and establishes monasteries with all that influence in what he does. His institutes, um, St. John Cashin's institutes, writings on monastic life in common were very, very influential on the development of monasticism. The northern Egyptian monastic system consisted of groups of semi-independent hermitages. Later on, these were called loras and have always existed in the east alongside of the Basilian monasteries. In the west, St. Anthony's form of monasticism is in some measure represented by an order called the Carthusians, who are monks that live in individual um, hermitage cells and only come together for certain things. There is a a very long DVD movie out called Into Great Silence. And in that you see the Carthusian way of life, which is really the Western form of Antony of Egypt's monasticism. St. Anthony's life, character and role in Christian history sees him justly recognized as a father not only of monasticism strictly so-called, but of the technical religious life in every shape and form. Few names have exercised an influence more deep and lasting or more widespread than his. Thank you. We'll just do a quick five minutes or so of, of question and answer. Yes. Father, if St. Anthony is in, is in the desert and he's, you know, by himself, how does he know there's a heresy going on? How, does, how do you keep up with what the church, <laughs> what the church is teaching? 
Well, um, St. Athanasius was, was exiled from his see, and so he's a bishop who comes out seeking refuge in the desert, and Anthony hears about it firsthand from Athanasius. But also, because many, many different monks came looking for spiritual advice or, or whatever at different times, and as we see, early on he kind of needed to work on himself, and then later on then he's more willing to you know, share what he's discovered with others. But, of course, they're feeding him with what's going on in the church as well. And you see that kind of his love for the church and interest in and passion for the things of the church so that then he even goes out to give encouragement to the martyrs and to preach against the Arian heresy. So that's how he finds out about it because people come to him and, and bring this. As an aside, you can say, if you want to find out the news of any diocese, go to the cloistered nuns. <laughs> They know it all. It's all intentions for prayer, I think. Uh, yes, oftentimes uh, you see the relationship or the link between communism and monasticism in the sense that you give up private property. Would you say that it's accurate to say that the monastery is sort of a communist system? Yeah, it, it is in the sharing, the sharing of goods, but the motivation, of course, is totally different. Um, so the motivation is, you know, um, is, a, is a complete sharing of those things, you know, out of the love of Christ and all, all, all belongs to all, you know, under God and we're stewards of, you know, um, rather than owners, you know. And I think even if you're not in a monastery, you know, people are so generous to causes, you know, um, you know Haiti and various other things. Christians see themselves as stewards rather than owners. Uh, and so in the, in the monastic system then, you know, whatever comes to the community is, is um, not only for the community, because as I was explaining, you also had in many of the rules that a certain amount of stuff had to be given to the poor on certain feast days. It was always connected with feast days, but so many shirts, so many tunics, so many shoes, you know, and, and it was laid out. And so actually, many of the monks were working hard to get the quota up because the next feast day was coming and they needed to have all the pants that they had to give out, you know, and, and so on. So that it was a, a sharing among themselves, but also a sharing with the, the poor. And in fact, in the rule of St. Benedict, um, he says, receive guests as Christ, especially the poor. Yeah, it's a different motivation. <laughs> yes. One thing that strikes me as very amazing is that now, if you want to become closer to Christ, you would go to the sacraments, and I don't think at, that he was a priest. No, and he so he actually, yes. for years, would go by with no access to the sacraments. Right, and, and um, very often, and I, I can't speak for Anthony particularly, but many of, many of them used to then come into town on Sundays for the Eucharist and then go back to the monastery. And then you had the thing of priests who actually wanted to be holy, and so who would seek to join the monastery. <laughs> no, no, you actually, no, I mean, you did have some priests who wanted to, to live the life of a monk. So St. Benedict says, yeah, be careful about receiving them. You know, they can enter, but they don't take over. And, and monks would respect them. You know, I, I, I was um, celebrating a very traditional Benedictine abbey in uh, England, and I, I, I was asked by the abbot, would I do the Sunday Mass? And on the vestments was the card, you know, with my name, and the name was Christus. And so they saw the priest saying Mass as Christ, which was kind of an old Benedictine, you know, it was a very nice thing. But so, you know, they would have a respect for the priesthood, but then St. Benedict says, well, if they're coming to be a monk, then they're going to be a monk. But gradually then, you know, the abbot would take priestly orders so he could celebrate the Eucharist and, and gradually... See, St. Augustine, I, I, I talk about Augustine a fair bit because he's, he's a different kind of monasticism to Benedict. Um, Augustine is very ecclesial, very church-minded. And Augustine, we know, um, celebrated the, the daily Eucharist, which was not common at that point in the history of the church. The Sunday Eucharist was the big thing, and then during the, you know, the hours, the liturgy of the hours, the, the praying of the Psalms all during the week, and then the Eucharist again on Sunday. But Augustine celebrated the Eucharist every day, which is kind of interesting, yeah. And then that catches on eventually, you know. So that by the high Middle Ages, 
in many Benedictine abbeys, most of the, the choir monks or the educated monks, many of them become priests. So, our Benedict was not a priest, no. no. St. Bridget in Ireland was an abbess, and she governed a bishop. Yeah, and she, you know, and, and it's not a feminist thing, it's just that her monastery, you know, established things and so on, and there was a, a bishop, they needed a bishop, and so she says, oh, bishop, will you come and help us out? But, I mean, it was kind of like a shared jurisdiction, and she certainly governed the priests, because uh, she was the abbess of that community. But the Irish church, interestingly, was always a monastic church, not a diocesan church, up until St. Malachy, and uh, then it becomes very diocesan and Roman. Do you know a better website than the one that I learned of this morning at 5 a.m. on the Catholic Channel for learning all about all religious orders, namely the Institute of Religious Life or IRL.com? Right, yeah, that's, that's meeting this week at Christendom. They've got summer program there from Notre Dame Graduate School. Well, you know, the Catholic Encyclopedia is always useful on the web. So you can go to religious life, monasticism, look up the names of particular orders. There'd be more than you could read there. There's a link on our website for that. You can go right on our links page. Um, I was just wondering, especially seeing you, and you, you know, you have kind of distinctive dress, and I was wondering <laughs> when the habit kind of became a thing. And also, you mentioned Liturgy of the Hours. and same, I'm assuming St. Anthony wasn't praying the Divine Office or something. I was just wondering, because those are so monastic, or you think of them as... Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the question of the, uh, of the hours, I mean, the, the monks had the idea of trying to pray always. <laughs> so some of them did try to pray always, and they nearly drove themselves crazy, <laughs> trying to pray always. So then what they would do is have like two monks nearby and this guy would be praying and this guy would be sleeping. Then he'd get up and he'd pray and he'd sleep. And he'd pray and he'd sleep. So they had the idea that, they, that someone was praying always. Uh, then they had the idea that um, they said, well, you know, someone in the church is praying. But then they had the idea of like St. Kevin in Glendalock in Ireland. He, he said 75 psalms a day. And he used to kneel in iced water with his hands stretched out like that saying 75 psalms in one session. So half the Psalter one day, half the Psalter the next. Some of them actually did the whole 150 psalms in a day. But then St. Augustine in the West and St. Benedict both had schema of psalms where you did the 150 psalms over a week. That's a little bit more doable. And you get something else done as well. You know, because you had to eat. You know. <laughs> as well. So, so then you had the division of the, the Psalter over, over the week and that largely remained in place up until Pius X sort of messed with the Psalter at the beginning of the 20th century and then there was a total you know after Vatican II we went to four weeks to say the Psalter instead of one so the little office of Vatican II some people called it you know it was a, the very short compared to what the old office was. You know, no, St. Anthony wouldn't have said the divine office in any formal way, you know. Uh, and, of course, in the Middle Ages, one of the main things for a young man or a young woman to do in the novitiate was to learn the 150 psalms by heart because you were using them all the time, every week. But one of the tests before religious profession was a young man or young woman would come before the abbot or the abbess and, and they would start off like the beginning of the psalm, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, like De Profundis Clamavi Ad Te Domine. Domine exaudiorationem meam, you know, and they would have to continue to recite the psalm. Or Dominus regit me, the Lord is my shepherd. Start off, and then off they'd have to say the rest of the psalm. And if they didn't know them, say, well, you're not ready for profession yet. You can't pray the prayer of the community. You have to know the psalms. And so they memorized the psalm, because every book was a handwritten thing. So a monastery, monastery might only have one psalterium, one book of psalms. So the youngsters were kind of looking at that all the time, trying to memorize it. But of course, people had a lot more ability to remember than we do. You know, those people forgot more than we ever remembered. Um, because they just, just remembered, remembered, remembered. The, the, the religious habit, one of the things was that the original habit would have been simple forms of dress. 
like a bag, you know, sort of a bag to cover you modestly, uh, and then something to protect your head from the rain, and then something to hold it all together. So the basic habit would have been a tunic. So like this part of my habit is, the, is we call the tunic, and some kind of sash, you know, to hold it together. And then something, our habit originally was joined across here with a full hood on the back. So you could pull it up over your head when you're outside or cold or whatever. So they were pretty functional. Then uh, a lot of the early habits tended to be just black cloth, was very common, whatever they could get. Uh, and then the Cistercians, when they, in the West, they started to wear just lamb's wool habits. They didn't wash them very often. You, you, you know, that kind of thing. When St. Francis founded the Franciscans, you, he just basically threw a bag over himself and tied a rope around it. That was it. I mean, like a Hessian bag. And then stuck a hood on the back of it. I mean, the first Franciscan get-up would have been quite a sight. <laughs> I mean, it was being pretty awful, you know. I mean, and some of the other religious at the time said, look at these people. I mean, what? You know, that, it, was, it was appalling, you know. And then for many orders, the scapula... The strip, strip of the back and the, and the front is part of the habit too. Some argue that it was originally a kind of an apron. And when we work, you know, you throw it over your shoulder and do things like that. But the scapula became, so the, the Benedictines, the Carmelites, Norbertines, all, all, most of them, Dominicans, all, wear, all, all have a scapula. But the only old order that doesn't have a scapula are the Augustinians. No, they just have a black tunic, a leather belt, and a capoose with a hood. Now, the Franciscans don't wear a scapula, though many female Franciscans do. Thank you very much, Father. Good. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>